0: This Week in Sparkling Water. My name is Joachim Eriksson and I'm the host of This Week in Sparkling Water. This is take two, episode whatever. In take one I was talking and then suddenly my heart dropped. And I could not shake that feeling of dread. Like Bo Burnham's, that funny feeling. And then I had to just stop and delete the whole thing and start over. And now I'm about to say the exact same thing again. But something will be different in my heart. So, what I was saying is like, oh God, it's happening again. Hold on. Hold on. It's like I'm being, my soul is being disemboweled. Something happens 45 minutes into recording where my heart just falls through the floor. Anyway, last episode I was talking about how I was, how I'm afraid of returning articles of clothing to clothing stores because it's so shameful. So I never do it. And I was talking about this memory from when I was 15 when I was with my friend and she returned something and there was just like, when they start asking you about the thing you're returning, you have to just say nothing and just be like, yep, I'm returning it. Yep, didn't wear it. And then they ask you a bunch of questions and you're just like, yep, don't know what to tell you. I'm returning it. And then after recording last week's episode, I went to his and hers. Two doors down from Holbrook. His Sundry. It's got... The store has a weird name. It's both called His and Hers, but I think the the uh, the men's clothing section is called His Sundry and the women's section is called something else. But So I bought a $100 shirt there. And I didn't even like it. And I, I, I bought it as a weird split-second decision. And when he offered me a receipt, I was like, I don't need a receipt. That's like how much I was... As I was buying it, that's how much of a state of delusion I was in. That I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to spend a $100 on this shirt that I don't even like. And I'm so certain that I want to keep it that I'm not even going to ask for a receipt. Making it that much harder to go back and be like, actually, I don't even like this. So I go back there with the shirt. I've worn it not at all. All the tags are still on it. It's still folded in the gift bag that they gave it to me in, but I don't have a receipt. So I give it to the lady and I say, actually, this just didn't work in the outfit the way I was thinking, so I'd like to return this. And she asked me for a receipt and I'm like, I don't think I got a receipt. And then the the mood is shifting, you know? She's not in a great mood. She does not love this. And then something happens where be going before going in there first of all before going into the store to return it i'd like you know i'm walking towards i'm walking down the street towards where the door is and then when i see the door i turn towards the door but i get so anxious that i turn away and i like keep walking and i don't walk in there and i walk past it And then I'm like standing there hyperventilating next door to the store where I'm going. And I turn around and I go back and I walk towards the store. But I get too anxious and I like look in there and there's a bunch of people in there. And I turn away and I can't walk in. And it took like four tries before I could walk into the store. (laughs) So stupid. Avoidant personality disorder. Oh, But then I just walked in. And I'm like, yep, want to return it. Didn't work in the outfit. Didn't get a receipt. And I was inspired by the memory of me being 15 and being with my Swedish friend. I think it was Hannah, uh, Anna Sunemark, Probably. She was always returning leather boots. When we were 15, that was like most of her day was occupied with her returning leather boots what would later be called fuck me boots, like boots that go just above the knee. Uh, Devastating. So I was inspired by how she just allowed for the cruel domineering silence to exist. And she just stood there and she didn't say anything. And in my head, before walking in, I had been like, I'm so sorry. I really want to support this place. I really like this store. Don't even give me my money back. Just give me store credit. And I was going to just nervously talk the whole time. And then when I actually go in there and, and, and put the gift bag on the, on the counter and say, I would like to return this. It didn't work in the outfit. I don't have a receipt. When that, when I'm actually in the moment, I just switch into this new mode of like, I mean, it's really related to sobriety, actually, because a big issue for me with sobriety was that I didn't know how to just be and how to just be, because I felt like you always have to say something cool. And every moment you have to be traveling forward in in, in a high speed. You always have to be traveling at a breakneck speed and being entertaining in a breakneck fashion. And you cannot just be you have to, you have to be on. And then when I got sober, I realized that it's okay to just fucking stand there and not say anything and not do anything. And it's okay to not know what you're doing with your hands and to just have your hands moving. And it's okay to not know what to do with your brain. And, and if you just stand there in silence, it's okay. And you don't have to drink. It's okay to just be. And there is something self-reinforcing there because the more you do it, the more you realize that I just was. And it was horrible, but it didn't kill me. And, and then afterwards, when you do it over and over, you realize it's not that horrible. It's just silence, you know? It's just silence and silence is okay, maybe. So, yeah. Instead of saying, oh, just give me store credit. I'm such a piece of shit for returning this. I love this store. I'm sorry. I want to support local. Instead, I was just like, I'm going to return this. And she just put all the money back on my credit card. I said nothing, and that was a success. But also, it was a success, but I walked out of it feeling horrible. And now, but then a few days passed, and I realized that it wasn't horrible it was fine i think that's where we're at i it's okay yeah anyway maybe i should drink a water i don't know yeah let's drink a water so i feel like we're really back and we're rip roaring and i spent 200 bucks on sparkling water in the last few days so i have all these proper flights like this time we're doing lime so it's no bullshit. It's no like, oh, I just have three sparkling waters. They have nothing to do with each other. These are all lime-flavored sparkling waters from really interesting brands. So the first one, hop water, sparkling hop water crafted with adapt- adaptogens and new tropics. It's fucking hop-flavored sparkling water. How weird is that? Oh, I didn't love both of the other hop waters. I think this might be the best one. The can opened kind of wrong. Yeah. You know how like lime has this earthiness that lemon doesn't have? Lime just has a fuller spectrum, slightly dirtier flavor than lemon. Lemon is like too clean and simple. Whereas lime is just a slightly dirtier, weirder flavor and the hops really go with lime. Like that's indescribable. Lime flavored hop water. Oh, and then like There's this wave of hop flavor that comes at you at the end. Like the tail end of it is very hoppy and really fucking weird, actually. That's good. That's an 8 out of 10. Okay, so I think I have to do this a little bit differently because I was sitting here in silence just thinking about this, and I think... The problem the problem is that sometimes on the podcast there's stuff I feel like I shouldn't talk about it, but I have to talk about it because it's what I'm thinking about. And so then I have this idea that, oh, I'll talk about it last. The stuff that I shouldn't talk about that invades people's privacy and that it's just bad, bad, bad gossipy stuff that I shouldn't talk about. I'll just talk about it at the end and then that way people will no longer be listening, and so then I can get away with it. But the truth is that no one is ever listening, maybe. Nope, that's not right. The truth is that it doesn't matter. The truth is that then I just sit here and I'm just thinking about the stuff I'm going to talk about later, and then I don't. I don't do it properly. So instead, I'm going to do it opposite. I'm going to start out by talking about the stuff I shouldn't talk about. So, <clears throat> thing one I shouldn't talk about. There's ten different things I shouldn't talk about. Here's number one. I have this friend who grows weed. Uh, Already, as you can tell, that's not something I should be talking about. Um, But it was very, we had this thing that happened that I found fascinating. So background here is that the weed industry has collapsed. The price of weed has cratered because they made it very low risk. No one gets in trouble for growing weed. So, and it's a cash crop that you can make a lot of money on. So too many people were attracted into the industry. So too many people threw too much money at it, invested too much, and grew too much weed. And suddenly there's too much weed, and then there's a, a, a glut, and the price craters. So a pound of weed used to be a thousand bucks. If it's good weed, it's thirteen hundred. If it's bad weed, it's seven hundred. You know, but generally a pound of weed is a thousand bucks. And then now a pound of weed is like three hundred bucks. Um. That's the background, okay? So I'm talking to this friend of mine who's a weed grower. And then he's um, telling me that he had this incredible experience where he grew some weed and it worked really well. And then he found someone who would buy it for 900 bucks a pound. Like three times as much as anyone buys weed for now, right? you're with me so far. And his girlfriend is there and she's like, bro, you just told me that you weren't going to tell anyone. Why did you tell the Swede? And then he's like, yeah, but I can tell the Swede because he's not involved. He doesn't care. All of his other friends are weed growers. And there's this commiseration thing where like, The only, the way weed growers talk to each other now is that it's just like, yeah, everything's fucked. Yeah, we're not making any money. We're just all losing money. We spent all this money on all this equipment and all this land and all this fucking, all of this, these fucking plants and we're just losing money. And the only way to talk for two weed growers to talk is just commiseration. And if you were to say, hey, I actually had a really good experience and I made this incredible deal and I made all this money, everyone would be mad at you. So you can't – so he had this – he was in this situation where he can't actually tell any of his weed-growing friends that he had this, like – that he made this incredible deal. But he can tell me because I don't grow weed. I'm just his friend. And then it made perfect sense to me how he told his girlfriend, hey, I'm not going to tell anyone because it'll it will be rude. It'll be it, – this was such a good deal that it'll be rude for me to tell anyone in the industry. And then it also makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that he said that. And it also makes perfect sense to me that he told me. And then I realized that right before he was talking about that, I was talking about my thing. And my thing is the same thing. Because my thing was, I just got a little bit of a promotion. And there was like six months of salary negotiation. And the salary negotiation went very well. And it went so well, in fact, that I have this feeling like I cannot tell anyone I work with how it went because it'll be very rude. So anyone in my life there, which is most of my people, because most of my people are the people I work with, and I can't tell anyone. So I'm telling him the story because we have nothing in common. I can tell him about the salary negotiation and I can give him the actual numbers. I could be like, six months ago, they offered me this thing with this number and I countered with this number. And then months later, they came up with a counteroffer and I I didn't think it was good enough. And then so much time passed that I could come up with a new counter -counter counteroffer that was even higher and blah, blah, blah. And I can tell him the actual numbers because he doesn't care. He's just my friend and he has no contact surface with my world. So all the numbers are just very hypothetical. But you do need to talk to someone about it because if we don't talk to anyone about it, we might make mistakes, you know? Also, it's nice when something goes well. You you have to talk through it to think through it. To think through it, you have to talk about it out loud, a.k.a. that's why I have a podcast. And also when something goes well, it's just very pleasant to tell your friend some good news about your own life. And then there's this line in friendship that if you tell the friend good news, how they react really says a lot about the friendship. And for us who have nothing in common, who can just give each other good news and it can just be good, it's very nice. And so I realized that I had just told him all these numbers about my salary negotiation and how happy I was about it and how I couldn't tell anyone about in my life about it. And then he tells me about this incredible weed deal he just did. And it's like, there's something there. There's something I find very interesting there because there's something there about... The value of friendship when you have nothing in common, because there are so many friendships that are situational, where you're friends because you are in the same situation. And if it wasn't, all of these things have their own different types of value. There's something beautiful about working on a project together and being deeply different and being people who would never be friends in real life or whatever you want to call it, who would never be friends if it wasn't for the project. And you work together on the project. And the the problem solving together, the co-op problem solving aspect of it is beautiful. And it is two human minds that feel incredible intimacy, because they work on a problem together. And it's a beautiful thing. Be it, you know, amateur theater, or be it, you know, you're a tech startup, and you're working on something together, and you're you are sleep deprived and you fucking are really invested in something and you try to make it work and you're multiple people and you, you really, really just put the success of the project before everything and you use your entire brain for it and it, it's a beautiful thing and it might be completely situational and as soon as the prob- project fails, you might never talk to each other again. And there's a type of value to that friendship that you had in that project. But then there's a different type of value to being two people who are friends and you have nothing in common. You just meet up and you can just, you can, you can say whatever. It's, there's something so beautiful there. And I almost think that the, the friendship where you have nothing in common is the most beautiful friendship. Because there's something, there's something delusional about when you're working together on something and you, your friends within the the parameters of the situation, where you're not really honest with yourself about how nothing is ever forcing you to be honest about how, hey, if, if it wasn't for this thing, we, we wouldn't, we would never talk. Anyway. There was something very clean and honest and pure about when his, girlfriend was like, Hey, what what, you just said? You weren't going to tell anyone. And now you told the suite. And and I was like, yeah, I totally understand what happened here. It's, it's very nice. It's very intimate. So that's a thing that I shouldn't say to anyone that I just said to you guys. Okay. Thing number two that I, that I've been thinking about that I, um, shouldn't say to anyone, get ready. (laughs) I've worked, I've had probably 25 jobs, some of them short term, some of them three, four years. And one pattern that I've noticed is that in anything that's successful, people have this tendency to not give a fuck about security or formalization. Like I've worked for some tech startups where, you know, you're like a bunch of people that are trying to get a thing going and it's going quite well and you're just so focused on making it work. And the whole website is just, you know, there's the customer-facing website. And then to work on it, you just do the com slash admin. And then the password is just password. And so a hundred people or like a dozen people are on it. And the password is just password. And you run the entire thing like that. Everything is protected just by you run million dollar businesses where the password to the whole thing is just password or like chef was telling me how he did like a, some sort of charity fucking pop-up event at um, the dump, which is it, it, the dump is a restaurant called Humpty Dumpty's. And he, so he's cooking in that kitchen and they have a nine pan in the kitchen, just full to the brim, with just cash. And that's how you have to run a business. Like you have to, to actually be successful. You have to not be dissuaded by thoughts of how things should be. Like how things should be secure and how things should be set up properly and formalized and all that stuff. You have to just rip. You have to just let it rip. That's the whole thing. And the dump is successful because they don't give a fuck about security and they just keep all their cash in a tin nine pan on an eye level shelf in the kitchen there's just a few thousand dollars in a nine pan right there and that's the money that goes in for the day and it's the money that goes out for the day and it's like a vendor comes in then they need to get paid so you just grab a fistful of dollars from the nine pan and it's just how you let it rip you know David Lancashire successful serial entrepreneurist, starter of Saito, pop-up Chinese. He, if I told him this, I don't even think he would understand what I'm saying. Because he's so, the successful startup, the successful entrepreneurial mindset is just complete. You're blind to anything that has to do with security because security doesn't matter. Like the odds that someone is going to try to come fuck up your shit are actually very low. You can protect the whole thing with just the password, password. You can make the password to everything password. Because until you're a very large business, no one is going to try to break in. The dump has been a business for decades and they keep all of their cash in a nine pan. And um, I was thinking about this because... Yeah, it's so funny. (laughs) Oh my God, I wish I could say it. I can't say it. There's just a hilarious, uh, there's just a hilarious security hole in the business where I work now, but I can't say it because it's insane. Because if I say it on the podcast, we're going to get robbed. But there's a funny security hole where you just like the key to everything, just is labeled and it says the key to everything. And you just hang it on the wall, you know, and it's the key to everything. And it's just like right there. Not guarded by anything. And that's like... And then, on the other hand, I have been... Like, when I was trying to start a wine business with Antoine, we did it for like a year and a half. We had a bunch of investment. And he just spent so much time on setting up the bookkeeping to be completely bulletproof. And having it all be completely up to date and... All of our tech security was perfect. And, you know, all of our taxes were perfectly figured out, even though we were like active in multiple countries and half countries and regions. Like the difference between China and Hong Kong in terms of taxes, it's like one country but two systems. There are so many complicated things. And he figured all of it out. And the business failed. You know, because he wasn't, he was too focused on that thing, which isn't, which doesn't matter at all. It's not the thing that drives the bottom line. And then I was trying to start a packaging company that I'm shutting down right now. And it was me. And I put a bunch of effort into making us totally compliant and we were so compliant and the whole thing failed. I don't want to talk about that. That's depressing. So I watched the show... Now I'm going to talk about restaurant kitchens for a bit. I watched the show The Bear, um, which people have been raving about for two months. And people rave about how it's... The fidelity to how what it's like in actual kitchens is very, very high. Like all the equipment and the way... Just the lifestyle and the equipment and the look and the issue. So much of it is extremely realistic but it it has this like uncanny valley aspect to it where because it's so realistic that just tiny little sprinkles of stuff that doesn't make sense become very obvious it's it's hard you can't really win you know like if it just had a if it wasn't realistic at all i wouldn't worry about it if everything about kitchen life was wrong in the show i would just watch it and watch it for what it is but because it, almost everything is correct the few things that aren't correct. Like there's one episode where they're all in the kitchen, right? And they got their aprons on and they're cooking and then they hear this sound from the bathroom and he like runs into the bathroom and he's supposed to be this like super well-trained chef who does everything totally right and he's so pissed that some of his coworkers are, don't take it seriously and they don't use the language correctly and they don't use proper kitchen language and they don't use proper sanitary methods and they get a bad health department rating and all the shit. And he's supposed to be like well-trained from the best restaurants in the world. But the thing is that if you have a few years of experience in a restaurant, there are certain things that are hard-coded in you. And one of them is you never ever go into a bathroom with your apron on. Like, I don't even notice. The apron just... My hand just automatic, My hands automatically take my apron off before I go in the bathroom. Like, it's just a rule. You can never have an apron in a bathroom. That is, like, literally a written-down health department rule. But it's also, like, just how it's done. You never wear an apron in the bathroom. And then in the show, he just runs into the bathroom with an apron on. And then, like, the toilet explodes and he gets toilet water all over him including all over his apron. And then later he's wearing the same apron, just outside smoking a cigarette. And then later he's just cooking with the same apron. It's like, bro, you just get drenched in toilet water. Um, Your apron is soaked with toilet water. Why are you cooking? And then they say, we have to close down. (laughs) And that's funny because there are there are rules that everyone follows and that you enforce on each other and it's part of the culture to just do it right and enforce it and then there are other rules which are written rules but everyone as a group we have just all decided in er, across every restaurant in America we've all just decided that well that's not one of the rules that we follow and one of the rules that you don't follow anywhere in America because it just doesn't work is that whenever there's a flooding the written health department rule is that you have to close down for the rest of the day because it's just unsanitary. When there is water flooding out of a drain on the floor, it's like multiple, it's like all these different variations of it and they all mean the same thing. If there's any kind of flooding, including, for example, a drain on the floor that is so clogged that it's like... uh, sewage water floods back up in uh, and covers the floor like whenever that happens you have to close for the rest of the day that's the rule and no one ever does because it's like you understand how many thousands of dollars is are lost when you close down because you still have to pay a bunch of people like everyone who was scheduled still has to get paid and then you have no income from that day and then all the food that all the food goes bad that had to be served that day like There's so many fixed costs involved in a day of service at a restaurant that pretty much every place I've ever worked at has at some point flooded a little bit. And then you mop it up and then you keep going. (laughs) It's so good. So, yeah. And then the other thing about the show The Bear, it's like they do nail the language in terms of like, script like the script is written correctly like they say corner and behind and stuff but the movements don't really match with it people just do it people don't really i don't know how to explain it people don't say behind and corner in the way that makes sense in reality because you're saying it i don't know so here's some funny things that happened in the kitchen recently. There's one thing oh my god Chef would be so pissed if I told if I knew I told talked about this on the podcast but I'm gonna talk about it on the podcast It's like fuck, I'm not allowed to talk about this I want to talk about it so bad. It's like I'm really trying to work on how we need to have open communication lines back and f- going in every direction for example like If a guest thinks that there's an issue with a food item, the front of house staff need to be feel like they can communicate that to the people who cook the food, and they need to just consider it and probably disregard it because most guests are crazy and they don't know what they're talking about. But but at least the information should go back there so that it can be considered. That's what I would like. And then we had this one day. I'm just going to whisper this story. We had this one day. Where a Sir Augustina was like, my my table's saying that the salad is super spicy. It's so spicy that they can't eat it. And I'm like, tell chef. And then she was too scared to tell him, but then she told him. And then Sarah from the front desk ordered a salad. And she's like, I think they're fucking with me. The salad is so spicy, I can't even eat it. And then I go back in the kitchen and I'm like, look, guys, just check on this for me. Like, why is the salad so spicy? And then they're, like, screaming at me the way they scream at everyone. (laughs) The way they scream. It's so funny. The part of the bear where they're just screaming is so real. Like, there's just such manic screaming. Oh, God. Okay, so they're screaming at me that it's not a spicy salad and I need to shut the fuck up. And there's lots of expletives. Oh, I'm crying right now because I shouldn't be talking about this. I'm not allowed to talk about this on the podcast. But I'm going to talk about this. So, oh so I go back there and they're screaming at me and I'm like test it out though like how do you not wait like you're not listening like the salad is spicy like figure it out like just take a look at what's going on and they're just screaming at me and they refuse to acknowledge the thing and so I stick my finger out and I'm like Put the fucking salad dressing on my finger right now. I want to try it. And they put it on my finger and it's a honey Dijon and I try it and it's super spicy and it's got a habanero type spiciness to it and I'm trying to explore it. So I'm just asking questions and I'm like, oh God, I'm not allowed to talk about this. <laughs> and I'm like, is there habanero also in the dressing? Like, is there something more than Dijon? Cause raw Dijon, straight, just regular Grey Poupon Dijon. It's very spicy straight, if you ever try it. Like mustard is very spicy sometimes, in some forms, under certain conditions. So maybe it's just the Dijon that makes it spicy. But I'm tasting it and I'm like, it tastes a lot like you also put habanero in there or like a pepper, it's like a pepper type spiciness. And it's quite spicy, even though I just put a little bit on my finger. And then Lilith put some on her finger. Lilith put some on her finger and she's like This is not salad dressing It's wing toss It's the sauce that we toss the wings in It's the honey habanero sauce that we toss the wings in Oh And they made a mistake and they labeled them wrong Oh it's So bad Oh god This is making me sweat All over my body the fact that I'm talking about this So, the anger level in the kitchen at that point because they know that they fucked up and they know that they should have listened to us. And they know, they know the whole thing. They know the whole thing. Oh, God. Anyway, let's drink another water. So... There's this guy on TikTok named the Carbonation King, and and he just drinks sparkling water on these videos a bunch. And he made me feel super threatened and like I'm doing it super bad. And and then um, uh, he was even drinking waters I hadn't heard of. So one of the waters he drank in one of his videos that I hadn't even heard of is called Origin. So finally I got a can of Origin. So this is Origin Lime. Oh, that is so good. Lime is so underrated. Like, there are multiple things. At Holbrook, we serve this tuna tostada. It's a, it's a crunchy round tur- tortilla crunchy tostada with a layer of crushed avocado on it and then sashimi grade ahi and slaw and cubed avocado layered into a pyramid with a little bit of microgreens on top and the whole thing is dressed in nothing but lime juice and then people always talk about it and love it and say it's so fresh the whole thing is so nice and they always ask me like what is the dressing (sighs) like a year of serving there, I probably got this question 15 times by someone who's like, love, they love the tuna tostada and they're like, what is the dressing? I love it. And then I tell them, it's lime juice. It's, it's not mixed with anything. It, there's no oil in there. There's no salt. There's no pepper. It's nothing. It's just lime juice. And they're just blown away by how lime juice is so much better than they thought. And then same thing. We had this lentil salad on. It's like lentils. Cooked perfectly, so they have a little bit of give left, and then cacahuates, which is like this spicy caramelized peanut that I'm sure I've talked about previously on the podcast, and just lots of good ingredients like tomatillos and and cubed av- up uh, avocado and 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 shards of crunchy tortilla. Same one that goes in the tostada. So all of these things just like mixed together in this like lentil salad sort of protein salad mix. And then people are always being like, what is the dressing on the lentil salad? This salad is so delicious. What is it? And then I just look them in the eye and I put a hand on their shoulder and I say, it's lime juice. And that's it. It's nothing else. Like lime juice is so underrated and people don't know about lime juice. Fresh, squeezed, proper lime is a wonderful flavor. And somehow in this can of origin, it's... It just really works, and it's really nice. Um, okay, let's talk about something else. Here's a here's a here's another thing. Uh, this is a very interest- interesting new emotion I had. So, somehow I got a promotion, and and now we're trying to formalize different roles in management. So, we have like a small little luxury boutique hotel with a lot of space where we do weddings. So there's an event planner, sales manager, whatever you wanna call it, and that person meets with couples who are gonna get married and sells them on our property and plans out the whole thing and figures out the whole deal and all these contracts are signed and then a wedding is gonna happen. And then the idea now is that its pro- service during the weddings is probably gonna go better if one of us, like me, handles the actual execution of service during the wedding. So suddenly I'm a fucking wedding planner because the idea is that the person who is good at selling and planning isn't necessarily good at, you know, expediting food service and, and you know, service. And that's more a restaurant person should do that. So I should do it. So never having worked an event like this in my life, suddenly I'm in charge of it. And I have all these subordinates and I had this. So I did my first one on Saturday and it was a trial run and the event sales manager is there and Doug is there and we're all chilling and we all do it together. And it's like a massive one. They bought out the whole property and it went beautifully and they were very happy. And it's just like such a massive like two-day event with everything planned out from breakfast until midnight every day. And we do the whole thing, you know, there's just pages and pages of, of plan, printed out plans of minute by minute, how we're supposed to do it. And we all do it. And it's, it's actually thrilling. It's exhausting, but it's thrilling. And everyone is in this like extreme state of focus and sidebar. I think what I'm going to work on that I think we could improve on is that we, we, when we do events All the servers are way too focused and they almost seem stressed because they're too focused. Whereas when we, when the same servers are on the floor in the restaurant serving tables, they have a lot more fun with it. And they're just like, you know, you get to have conversations with people, you get to laugh and just like crack jokes and be funny. And they are much more relaxed there. But I think I need to bring some of that floor style relaxed. Like we need to develop a sense of, relaxed focus for the events, end of sidebar. Because I think even if you're, sidebar not over, I think even if you're at a wedding and it's like catered and you have all these round tables in a big banquet hall, banquet tables, and all these servers come in and serve 100 people at the same time, even in that situation, you like it if the server is still, there's a softness and a humanness and a warmth and a smile to that server. Even though the whole thing has a, a, ceremon- a sense of ceremony to it, a sense of ritual and a sense of gravity and importance, I think the server can still be happy. I don't need like a depressed-looking 17-year-old to bring me a fucking barada, you know, just because someone's getting married. Anyway, end of sidebar. So the thing then is that I do a trial run on Saturday and then on Sunday there's a new wedding, back-to-back, two days in a row, just two weddings. And on Sunday, it's me, and I'm alone, and it's just like I'm responsible for it. And I had this fascinating emotional experience with it, where first of all, it's like beautiful because I have a team, and they're so supportive of me, and they've done a ton of events. And I haven't been involved in events, so I don't know anything about how to do a fucking wedding. so And I don't even know any of it. So all the servers have to tell me like, okay, so now you're, now you bring everyone in there and we do a meeting and you explain everyone, explain to everyone using the, supported by the piece of paper with the plan on it, you explain to everyone which roles they're going to have. And me, having no idea what it is, just tell everyone like, okay, come into this room and, and I just lead a meeting that I didn't even, like 30 seconds previous, I didn't even know that we did this type of meeting and now I'm leading it. And it's like the whole thing is so by the seat of our pants, but. And I don't have any skill in this area, but I have uh, undue confidence because many things. Because I'm a man, because I have a little bit of sobriety now, and the sobriety comes with a lot of confidence, and because I'm relaxed and I'm not letting anything get to me, and also all the people know what they're, like all the, my subordinates know what they're supposed to do. You know what I mean? So my whole thing, I'm useless there and it's fine. But so I, I do the whole thing, but, and I dude, it, Brit almost made me fucking cry because she was so fucking nice to me. And she was like, she's like whispering to me what I should say to her to do. It's like, what's more beautiful than that? Like someone who is so unconcerned with ego and so unconcerned with taking credit that she's literally whispering at me what orders I should be giving to her. And then I just give her those orders and then she just nods and just goes and do it, goes and does it. And it's like, everyone was like that. They were just whispering to me what I should tell them to do. And it was beautiful. It was, I mean, the, how supportive they are and how mad they could be, but they're not because we love each other. It's situational, and we would never be friends if it wasn't for the situation, but we love each other, and it's fucking beautiful, dude. And there's no ego and no credit, and we just want it to be chill, and it's a really positive workspace where we all are just on the same page about, like, it'll be much nicer for everyone if we're all just nice to each other. You know, that's the implicit social contract of the whole situation. But the thing that I was going to say about it is that, so... I'm in this big banquet hall with all these big round banquet tables and everyone's having dinner and there's a satellite bar in the corner and, and there's a hosted bar and it's open bar, blah, blah, blah. And I'm standing in the middle of the room overseeing everything, making sure that these like 10 people are doing what they're supposed to do and everything is looking good. And then the groom stands, all these people stand up and do speeches and I'm just standing there not doing anything, just overseeing and looking at it and, and, um, sort of like breaking into different things to, to cor- course correct when I can see something is not going perfect and I just step in and just fix it real quick. But then here's the weird thing that happened. Because I was responsible ultimately, like if something had gone really pear-shaped, all of these people that actually know what they're doing, all of the servers, <clears throat> they wouldn't get in trouble. I would get in trouble. Like if something goes really bad, it's my fault. And because of that, the pressure is on. And because the pressure is on, I had such a weird, like, emotional investment in the whole ceremony. And then when the groom stood up and did a speech, he was such a nerd and he did such a... It was such a, like, one-dimensional speech where he just said he loved everyone. Dude, I almost started crying because... Because I was responsible for the event, I almost started crying when he said he loved everyone. Because I could see straight into him and he was so human and raw. And it was such a special moment for him because he got married. And it was such a special moment for me because I was responsible for so many fucking things. And it's like because there was risk, I almost started crying. I like teared up. And it reminded me of so many different things or it like explained so many different things to me of how (sighs) when the pressure is on, it's just so easy to cry. And it's like, I'm sure that's what it's like. I'm sure that's why people cry on reality TV or like in interviews on TV where you're on TV and the camera's in your face and they ask you about something that was a big experience for you and you're a big man, but you just cry. Because the camera is there and the pressure is on and there's a heightened sense of everything because the pressure is on. It's such a mysterious feeling. And it's so, our, in- it's so poorly understood by our intuitions and we make these like really simplistic statements about it where we're like, oh, he's just faking it because there's a camera. But it's like that really doesn't do any justice to the actual experience of what that's like. Because the actual thing is like, Yes, he wouldn't have cried if there wasn't a camera there, but that doesn't mean that he's faking it. It just means that because there's the camera's there, there's just this raw, difficult... Everything is heightened. There's an explosion. It's like a sneeze. It's like when a sneeze is coming, you can't control it. Or you can control it, but even if you control it, it's going to be something. So you can control it and make it this like, jerking motion where you do nothing and you make no sound, but you kill tens of thousands of brain cells and you're really not supposed to keep a sneeze in. Or you can scream while sneezing like a dad and make it literally the loudest thing ever and it really hurts your throat when you scream while you sneeze. Or you can just sneeze middle of the road average. Whatever it is, the sneeze is going to be something. And that's what the pressure feels like. Like the way a camera is pressure, it's like you can modulate it and you can be an actor and cry a bunch because there's a camera and it can come off as really fakey. But it's not completely fake because you couldn't do it without the camera. There's like a relationship between all these things. Like there's a give and a take and a flow. Like the viewer who looks at the person crying, who thinks that they're faking, doesn't understand that the viewer... A lot of energy is coming off of the viewer. And the reason they're crying is because of the energy from you as a viewer. I don't know. There's something there that we really are very bad at understanding. And then at the end of it, I at at midnight after this whole night of of wedding, I was talking to the groom a bunch and he was asking me a bunch of questions and trying to get to know me. and, And he was a little bit, just a tiny bit drunk, but not really. And quite emotional and just like a very nice guy. And he was just very smart and involved and you could tell that he was... And so I said a bunch of things and I was like, yeah, so I actually recently got a promotion and and this was kind of the first one that I was just completely responsible for. And he was like, kept being like, wow, that's incredible. Like, congratulations on your promotion. And honestly, I was thinking about it afterwards. That is such a bigness of heart. To on your wedding day, have the bigness of heart to talk to a staff member of the venue where you're getting married and to listen to their thing and to congratulate them on something going on in their life and not making it all about yourself. Like to have the calmness and the bigness of heart of doing that, that's actually quite impressive. It's actually really beautiful. Like it's actually a very, very Admirable trait that that man had because he really, he like repeated, he like said a bunch of really nice things to me. And then he asked me if he could give me a hug. And I had this flashback where I was like, three hours previous, I'd been tearing up listening to his speech. And I had had this foreshadowing thought where I was like, I hope at some point I can ask him, like, if I can give him a hug because I really want to give him a hug. And then he asked me if he could give me a hug. And it's like, He was like, can I give you a hug? Is that inappropriate? And I was like, no, I want you to give me a hug. And we hugged. And I didn't have the wherewithal and like the language to really describe all the things that it meant to me and how I had foreshadowed the moment in my mind and how I'd already thought about hugging him. I didn't even say that. But it's like, maybe you don't have to say everything. Maybe it's okay. And then his wife came up to me and was all teary-eyed and said all these things about how much she appreciated everything. And then she also asked me if she could hug me. And the, the heightened sense of emotion from the risk and the pressure of responsibility together with the hugging made it like one of the most deeply emotional moments of my entire life. You know, I've never been responsible for a- anything, you know. That's the truth. I've never been responsible for anything. I've always been super self-sabotaging and super judgy about it. I've always been like, "Nah, people who, t- who are responsible for shit—they're fucking fakers. They're lame. They're just frauds. That just means you're part of this like bullshit capitalist machine. I don't want to be a phony." And then you're just alone all the time and you never do anything and you never succeed with anything and you just reject everything and you're just judgy about anyone who does anything and you're just judgy all the time. And and then when you just let go of all of that and just become part of something and choose to care, for you for that's the first time I realized what it means to be a human, to work and to do stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, brother. On Saturday, I ordered food, and um, Lilith screamed at me, and she was like, why would you do that? Why would you order food in the middle of the rush? And I look at the clock, and it's 15 minutes till we're closing, and it's definitely not in the middle of the rush. (laughs) I don't know why I just thought of that. It's just so funny. Why would you do that in the middle of the rush? It's, Lilith, we're closing in 15 minutes. Whenever you order food, Lilith is going to... Lilith is going to be pissed. You can't win. So yesterday I drove to Yuba City and I got vaccinated again. Now look at this, bro. COVID, I'm competitive with COVID. COVID is a competition and I'm winning. I have now gotten four vaccine shots and I have had COVID zero times. And I am winning. There's been so many times when everyone else is sick and I'm the only person who's not sick and I make a lot of money. I made a lot of money on this, on this here pandemic. And, um, I was telling Madison about this yesterday and it's, that's making me feel shitty because I'm about to repeat myself, but, it's It's whatever I'm gonna do it. It's um I go I drive all the way to Yuba City because they don't have the new Omicron updated fucking variant specific booster. They don't have it in Grass Valley yet. so I drive all the way to Yuba City. I drive an hour and five minutes to a ride aid in the fucking ghetto and I roll up there and she's like, "Yeah, I need your ID and stuff. Is this your second shot, third shot, seventh?" And she, that's what she said. And she chuckles to herself, this nurse at the Rite Aid between the gla- behind the glass. And she, and she chuckles. And I really appreciated that moment because it, it showed me that now we are allowed to have fun with this. You know, we're all over it and we're allowed to have fun with it. Because in the beginning of the pandemic, it was very morose. And we were all very, you had to take it so serious. And you, it was like we were policing what we're allowed to feel about it. And I don't, I think what I think about life and society and being in a group, humans living together in a group. I think what I feel about it is as a group, we have to decide, the majority has to decide what we're going to do. But the majority shouldn't be deciding how you feel about it. Like you're allowed to be pissed off. If you're in the minority and you didn't want us to do this, you're allowed to be pissed off about it. But there was something in the pandemic where we weren't only saying to everyone, hey, you have to wear a mask and you got to vaccinate in a sec here when we get a vax going. We were also saying, and also you have to be really fucking sad all the time and you have to take it really seriously and you're not allowed to have fun with it. So no one had fun with it and no one was allowed to have fun with it. And then because we weren't allowed to have fun with it, as if people aren't always dying. Yes, the pandemic has killed a million Americans and millions and millions of people across the world. But hey, guess what? Millions and millions of people die all the time. Life is life was always suffering. The whole point is that we still have to have fun with it. But it's like because we weren't allowed to have fun with it, people got so mad. The people who don't believe in it got it just got so angry. And now at least we've gotten to this like bored equilibrium where people die and you're allowed to have fun with it. Yeah. So the lady was like is this your second or third or seventh vaccine shot and she chuckled for herself and I was like yeah huh this is my fourth one and uh it's like cuz there are these I'm sure every there's so many jokes about how it, how we we're going to need infinite boosters and there's now a subscription model healthcare system and and all of this and and um yeah, and when she says seventh, subconsciously she's referring to all those internet skits where it's like, "Do you have proof of your twenty-five shots and everything?" And and it's fine. And um, and then I drive around Yuba City, and honestly, I have a soft spot in my heart for Yuba City because Yuba City is—I've said this before—it is a Real shithole of a town, but it's also beautiful, and it's truly diverse. Like in a whatever statistical model you want. Like there's a lot of statistical metrics where you can say that Yuba City might be one of the most diverse places in the whole world. There's no 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 group is more than twenty percent of the population. You know, Yuba City is like fifteen percent white people, fifteen percent Indian, fifteen percent black, fifteen percent Mexican. It's just every like. Latino and Hmong and Sikh and like you drive around the city and someone someone pulls up next to you in like a weird modified Dodge Charger and that and there's like incredibly loud Middle Eastern rap music blaring out from it and from the windshield or not windshield from the rearview mirror he's got like a Sikh you know, the weird Sikh golden fucking two knives dangling from the rearview mirror. And it's just like a truly, I don't know. And I have my Swedish rap music blaring and we're friends. And then there's something that happens in those, like there's something we allow for when, the, when it feels like the space doesn't belong to anyone. And it's it is we it allows for a friendlier way of doing it, where I drive around and and I get to all these I I'm trying to go to all these vintage stores. I also, I'm realizing these words mean different things. I I always thought that secondhand and vintage and used that all those words mean the same thing. So I would always plug it into my phone app just arbitrarily plugging in one of those three when I'm trying to get to like use furniture or like buy a good find a goodwill or whatever. but honestly they're different I'm realizing. like used is shitty. Second hand is a little bit better and vintage is really fancy. All things are previously owned goods, but they the three terms are different tiers of previously owned where if you go vintage, everything is expensive as fuck. And if you go used, everything is ch- super shitty. Like thrift shop is like thrift shop and used is the bottom tier. Second hand mid is the mid tier. Vintage like this is this was not obvious to me until like last few weeks. Because I said something I was talking to my buddy Matty Ice and I said something about vintage. And he was like he totally missed the point of what I was trying to say and he was like yeah, vintage is such bullshit, it's so overpriced. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. What are we talking about here? And and it just became clear to me that there's a pattern there where like, oh, so the stores where everything is like $1, like Goodwill is not vintage. But then when it's like pre-owned Gucci... And pre-owned like little side table made out of dark mahogany wood. And it's like $750 for a little side table. That's called vintage. And in that moment when he said, oh, vintage is so fucking overpriced. I, it was under, oh, it's pouring outside. It's beautiful. We've gotten some rain. Anyway, so I went to all these, um, vintage stores in yuba city there's like a crossing where they have like 12 vintage stores on one block and it's all these bullshit side tables that are fucking expensive as shit and then i i keep going from store to store and i end up in marysville which is next door to um next door to yuba city yuba city is like a twin city where it's cut that it's a It's one urban center and it's barely even a city, but it is a city. It's got some malls. It's a city. It's a very small city and it's cut in half by a river and everything west of that river is called Yuba city and everything east of that river is called Marysville. And it feels like one city if you're not really paying attention, but they think of it as two cities. So I end up in Marysville and I end up in a store called thrift bargain and more. And it's, it's on this dusty, really shitty part on the outskirts of Marysville, where there's also a. I'm familiar with the area because there's a grocery, there's an Asian grocery store there that I always go to. But so I end up at this thrift, bargain, and more. And what I was gonna say is that it's like when you end up in when you have an urban center in America that's truly diverse, like where white people are way less than fifty percent. There's this openness, this feeling of openness that is allowed for, where you really feel like the space belongs to no one. And it allows for much a much more welcoming space. So I go, I walk into the store, and there are all these Indian dudes sitting by the door, and they greet me in this very, very happy, like these guys are hanging out, and they're cracking jokes, and they're so, like they're... They really love hanging out with each other. These four dudes in like comfortable armchairs sitting by the entrance of this massive uh, thrift store. And they're greeting me and they're laughing and, and it's like super fun. And I'm walking around and I'm walking around for a while and I'm seeing a lot of good looking furniture. And I see a couch for 150 bucks that's like, that made me feel like I really regretted spending 200 bucks on a small, shitty IKEA couch. Because I should have just spent $150 at this thrift shop and got a a much nicer, bigger one. But I'm walking around for a while and I'm seeing a lot of good stuff. And it's a lot of like fun, weird shit at very good prices. And then this very nice, maybe Sikh, Indian dude, Pakistani, what do I know? Guy comes up to me and he's like, tell me if you have any questions, bro and his english isn't great but i tell him like that he's got some great stuff in the store and he really appreciates me saying that and he becomes very happy and then <laughs> it just becomes this really fucking nice thing where i buy a bunch of shit and whatever i buy he just the price tag says 40 he's like i'm going to give this to you for 30 and i want to give this guy more money but he just keeps giving me he just keeps lowering his prices. And it's a terrible business model. It just is a terrible business model. But he, I'm, you know, the price tag says 30. I buy three of them. So it's 90. No, I mean, he lowers the price from the price tag. And then when I buy multiple, he lowers the price again, because now I'm buying multiple. And then when I'm paying, he the he gives me a receipt for 70 bucks. And he says, just give me 60. So over and over, he just keeps lowering the price. And I'm like, I don't even like I would happily give you a 100 bucks, I'm getting a bunch of furniture. So I look him in the eye. And I'm like, bro, this is like my new favorite store. But there's just something about it where I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's a wonderful sense of openness, and just human connection without obstacle in being two people from different cultures who interact in a space that belongs to no one. That's the key thing that I'm talking about, I think. Yuba City has this feeling of being a space that belongs to no one. Because there's something, like when you're in a city that very clearly belongs to the white people, like when you're in a place where there's 70% or 80% or more white people, the space belongs to the white people and there is just like a loud ambient noise like just a ringing noise of white culture in the background that like overpowers everything and then you look you can talk to an Indian guy and it can be all good and it's fine but there's just a different level of joy and openness and experimentation that comes with and here, I want to be careful not to make this about, it's not about white people. It's not that there's a problem with white people. The same thing is true in China. Like, China very clearly belongs to the Chinese people, to the Han, my, majority Chinese, that, like, Han is the, um, the ethnicity that it's like a kind of a construct but it's like nine more than 90% of chinese people are han majority and then eight remaining eight or something percent are 52 different minor minorities but so wherever you are in china there's like an ambient loud ringing noise of the majority culture that you are existing in relationship to and there's all this expectation of doing things the way they want it to be but then You can go to a place like Singapore, which just isn't like if it belong. if Singapore belonged to anyone, it would belong to the Chinese people, but it doesn't because the Chinese people are, Singapore is like Yuba City where no group is more than 30%, you know, it's a pluralistic thing like that. So there's just an openness to interacting in that space where there is no expectation of whose rules we are supposed to adhere to so instead you revert to this like very very basic human thing of smiling and checking each other out and being like hey how are you doing like you know like well what's up what's up with this space you know and there's just like this incomplete lack of expectation and then when you're two people who are smiling at each other and you're like hey maybe we're are we cool like maybe we're like there's absolutely no expectation and you look at each other and you're like maybe we're cool and it makes you so much more cool it makes you there's an intimacy there that's extremely pleasant and fleeting but also such affordable furniture a thrift bargain and more (laughs) i don't know if it was the intimacy with the with the Sikh man, or if it was the, the low, low prices, but, but I was loving that experience, you know? And then he like made, I was trying to carry the, my furniture into my truck and he like, no, 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 And he like wrestled it out of my arms and r- insisted on carrying all the stuff for me. There was just so many acts of hospitality, universal human hospitality. And like bad business sense, like terrible business sense. Like I'm here and I'm trying to give him money and he just won't take my money. At every turn, he just kept giving me money back. Something wonderful there. Something so wonderful there. And then I just go up the street to this Asian store where I... I always go there and I buy condiments and frozen goods and Asian food to like cook. But then it's like this cool Asian grocery store where, where they actually will cook food for you in the back of the grocery store. And there's this big sign that says, no dine-in, only takeout. So it's like a grocery store, so you're not allowed to sit in the grocery store and eat. But they will serve you some food and put it in a styrofoam box for you, and you can get it to go. And it's like really dinky. And I've been in there and bought... bought, you know, groceries many times, but I've never, and every time I'm pissed because I'm like, oh, I just ate. I wish I could eat here because the food is probably really good in this, in this like weird, dusty, empty part of, the the grocery store is called, I have no idea how to pronounce it. It's P-H-O-O-J, which is just such a weird word. And then it's Y-W-G, Lee. I'm going to name this episode this because it's like impossible to it's quite impossible for me to say it to you. But it's like Pyongyung Li, you know? Who knows how that's pronounced? And I've Googled it because I'm fascinated by it because it's so clearly not Chinese. And me and my buddy Sebastian, we've always had this little uh, hobby of being interested in Asian names and how the romanization of Asian names, first of all, their own they are all kind of in the, a constant state of losing their own written languages because of wars and, and uh, you know, different conquerors deciding that now the population can only write in this language and now they are only allowed to do this written language and then in the end it always reverts to Chinese characters because um, in the end the house always wins, you know? The Chinese there's always more Chinese people in the world, so they always in the end the Chinese people always roll up on you wherever you are in Asia. At some point, the Chinese are going to come in and be like, "Now you can only write in Chinese characters." So, the romanization of Chinese of Asian languages is fascinating because it's um, it's a it's a snapshot of like. You can take, and uh, I've talked about this on the podcast many times before, so let me just do that the summarized version because I find it so fascinating. You can take like a Chinese, um, no, I keep saying Chinese, an Asian, Southeast Asian people with their own language and their own like disappearing written language and their own dialect and their own slang and all of this stuff. And then depending on when they left their country and wandered into the Western world, Depending on what what decade they enter the Western world, they will Romanize using our language, like our alphabet. They will write their own name with our alphabet differently. So depending on like, you, you can see, you can know what decade they entered America based on how they wrote their Asian last name in alphabet letters which is fascinating to me. But so then knowing, having seen lots of different Asian names and stuff written in an alphabet, I'm just fascinated by this name because it's so fucking different from anything I've ever seen. And I've Googled it and it's turns out that I think it's Hmong and Hmong is spelled like H M O N G Hmong. And the Hmong are some sort of Southeast Asian minority people that are maybe in Vietnam and Southern China and stuff. And, and now, for some reason, they have just posted up in, in the northern parts of the Central Californian Valley. And they're big into agriculture and in, in the last few decades. They're really big in weed. I've heard of these big valleys somewhere here in the northern foothills, foothills of northern California, north of here, I think, where the Hmong are just – it's just – as far as the eye can see, it's just greenhouses and greenhouses of – Hmong people growing weed. And then they had this grocery store in Marysville. And so I go in there and for the first time I ordered food. And I I was coming off the high of having talked a bunch with this Indian man and having had this like strange sense of intimacy with the Indian man because we are allowed to just meet as two pure souls in a space that doesn't belong to the white people. Because we're on... We're in a dusty forgotten corner that that the white people just deemed not valuable enough to colonize, I think, which is why it's just abandoned. And the 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 fact that it's abandoned is why it's so free, you know? And so I'm coming off the high of, of me and the Sikh man and I'm wandering into this Asian grocery store and I go straight, I beeline to the back of it where I've seen them cook food and I'm... And I'm in there and I'm starving. It's like 4.30 p.m. I haven't had any food and I'm excited because I'm about to order food for the first time in this grocery store. And there's this like (laughs) nice Asian lady back there. And she is, she doesn't say hi. She doesn't say anything. (laughs) She starts off like this. She goes, she has an appointment. So it's like she can't cook. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but she has an appointment. And she's saying this to me. She has an appointment. So she can't, you know, she can't do it. And I'm not sure what she's talking about, but I immediately feel good about this because she thinks I know what's going on here. Which is the opposite of realizing that people think you're an idiot. (laughs) So she's immediately going into something where she's assuming that I know what's going on, which makes me feel like it must seem like I seem like I know what's going on. So she's saying these things about like she, she... has an appointment. So I'm trying to puzzle together what's going on. So apparently there's this like lady with perfect English who's clearly just like an American, Asian-American lady who, know, who takes her order. And then there's some Asian lady who doesn't speak English who cooks all the food. And apparently the Asian lady who cooks all the food has an appointment. <laughs> so she can't cook. So, I'm saying so I'm asking the lady like, "So, does that mean I can't I can't order? You you guys are closed?" Is that what you're saying? And then she's like, "No, it depends on what you order." So, I'm looking at the menu and I'm like, "Hey, I'm chilling. Like, I'll order whatever. Like, just tell me what you can cook and I'll order one of those things." And she's like, "Well, it depends." So, I just look at the menu and I'm like, "What about a fried rice? Like, could you make me a fried rice?" And she's like, "Totally. I could make you a fried rice." And the whole thing, it's like, "I'm sorry, but she has an appointment." And it's I don't know. I've been th- for some reason I've been thinking a lot about the word appointment recently because it's such a funny, vague term that can mean whatever. And it's it reminded me of how Soleil and me in the last week we've had this. Um, we've been texting a lot about making fun of. I make fun of her because sometimes at work she has to suddenly leave and she's like, "I have an appointment." But it's really that she's a dog walker and she has to walk these dogs. But she makes it sound like she has a dentist appointment. So she makes it sound like it's real set in stone and important and it's a dentist or medical thing. But really, she has to let these dogs out so they can pee. So I'll text her and be like, Soleil, you. Soleil has to leave work because she has to let her dentist out so her dentist can pee, you know? Soleil can't. Soleil is late for work because her dentist shit the bed and she has to clean it up. And Soleil has an appointment, you know? The word appointment is a funny, vague term because it can mean anything. So I don't know what kind of appointment the Asian lady had, but I I got a fried rice and the whole thing just felt so good because I know those guys in there now and they allow me to feel part of it. They allow me to feel part of the community. And I'm always asking them which condiments go with what. And they're always like... His wife is always yelling at him like... (laughs) Don't ask him. He doesn't know. He doesn't fucking know which condiments to go with what. He doesn't know anything about food. He's a fucking idiot. He doesn't cook. He doesn't know anything about this. Don't ask him. And I'm like, look, lady, I'm just trying to get some sweetened vinegar here. Can we like... I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to make his his marriage worse here. Just because I'm trying to get some sweetened vinegar. Just... Point me in the direction of the best Pearl River brand sweetened vinegar that goes with dumplings that I steam at the house. Just relax. I'm not trying to start shit. I'm not trying to start nothing. I'm sorry she has an appointment. I'm sorry your husband doesn't cook. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to get some Asian food in my belly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Anyway... And then I'm driving around out there and I got this like fucking, I, the, the food is to go. So I leave and I'm driving around and I'm really looking for a spot to just pull up and eat my food in the car because it's like perfect temperature. It's like 27 degrees Celsius. There's a little bit of a breeze. It's sunny. It's just like a perfect temperature in dusty northern Central Valley, California to drive around with the windows down and listen to some music. And I see this massive parking lot with a gra- grand view of the entire vista, and and really look if you drive east from there, from Mar- Marysville and the Smartsville Hamilton Road, it's really this like strangely beautiful. My, it's the it's the most. I've said I said this to Maddie yesterday. I've said this to many people. It is the most beautiful part of California to me. It's like. There's an Air Force base. It's the Beale Air Force Base. And there's this highway that cuts straight through the Air Force Base. I don't think you're even allowed to stop there, but I stopped on the side of the road and I ate my food. And it's these rolling hills where you're driving up this hill and you don't see anything over the top of the. And then, and then suddenly the. You come over the hill and you go downhill and that whole thing opens up and you see the whole valley. And then when you're at the bottom of the hill, you see nothing. And then you get to the top of the hill and you see everything. And when it's green and spring, it looks like the rolling hills of that um, desktop, that windows came... like. There was a time, Windows 97, Windows 2000, I don't know which one, but one of them was that you install the windows and the desktop picture that comes with every single installation of windows is rolling green hills over this like impossibly, under an impossibly blue sky with beautiful clouds. And that's what the Smartsville-Hamilton fucking highway looks like with those rolling hills and you go up and down and it's, the road is so straight and you can allow your mind to wander. <sighs> and it's just the clouds are so different under those hills. And I was driving around and I, and I was looking for a place to stop and I was driving real slow. And then I see this empty parking lot. And then there's this Chinese lady talking to herself in Mandarin. And honestly, you don't hear a whole lot of Mandarin. So she's talking real loud in Mandarin. And I'm like, she must be on her phone. And I'm... And I'm about to roll to a stop because I want to eat my food. And I'm like, huh, maybe after this lady hangs up, I'm just going to fucking start catcalling her in Chinese and roasting her and and strike up a conversation with this lady and just speak a little bit of Chinese because that's always refreshing. It's always refreshing. Catcalling is not the term, you know what I mean? But I, maybe I'll just like going to surprise this lady with speaking Chinese to her, and we're going to have a a nice conversation while I eat this like fried rice that I made sure to ask for chili oil on the side for. You know, what's better than when you order fried rice and, and you ask for prawns and they add these big prawns and then you ask to add broccoli so it's healthy and then you get chili oil on it. And somehow, when the way they do it, it's something about the stiffness of the rice because the rice is from yesterday. It's something about the perfect level of oil, but I can never get it good at the house. Like when I make fried rice myself, it's never that good. It's never as good as the way they do it in a big wok pan with a fire like a real gas stovetop, open flame gas stovetop in a big old wok with a loud, loud all-metal spatula banging in there, always banging on the side of the wok. Like, how do they get it so good? I can never get it that good. So I'm about to eat my food, and I'm rolling to a stop, and I'm I'm about to pull up next to this Chinese lady screaming into a phone, and then I fucking realize that this lady speaking to herself in, in Mandarin. She's definitely not on the phone. She's homeless, and she's crazy. And everything she owns is in a little rolly cart next to her. And she's crazy. And she's in the middle of a psychotic breakdown. And she's hallucinating. And she's talking about Trump in Mandarin. And so so I'm rolling to a slow... I'm rolling to a... You know, I'm driving slower and slower about to stop the car and then i realize she's crazy and i speed up again and i'm like let's find somewhere else to let's find someone else somewhere else to eat my fried rice so i keep going and i I stopped on the side of the air force the beale air force base fucking highway and i ate my rice under that impossibly blue sky Because I don't want some Chinese lady to just, like, jump in the window, get in my car. That would be terrifying. Let's drink a water. All right, so this is a spindrift lime. Sparkling water and real squeezed fruit. That's what all the spindrifts say. Yep, that's it. That's what they all say underneath. So this is just... they. Squeezed two limes into eight cans of sparkling water. Ah, that's pretty good. Now, the surprising thing here is that the other two, even though this is nothing added, it's just lime. Somehow the other ones are just fresher. It's just a realer lime. Some of these spindrifts are amazing. Like the pineapple spindrift is... Some of the best water in the whole world. But this lime Spindrift, nah. That's a 5 out of 10. Somehow that lime feels fakey and metallic-y and not not fresh. Ah. So, you know, I was driving to work two days ago. And I have this experience a lot where the way my anxious mind works is that I am... I'm driving to work and then there's a big branch on the road and I swerve and I'm at the part where the, the highway comes down around the highway, highway 49 snakes down into the bottom of the valley. And then there's a river over the Yuba river and then it snakes up on the other side of the, the mountainside, and it and the whole valley, it's just, there's no cell phone reception. So in my mind, I'm like, Jesus Christ, if I had hit that branch, I would have gotten a flat tire and I'm on my way to work, and I don't have any cell phone reception here, and I don't know how to change out a tire. So then after that happens, even though I don't hit the branch, right, and I don't get a flat tire, for the rest of the drive, I just sit there with no music, and I'm just sitting in silence in my car driving to work, fleshing out the entire worst-case scenario of, like, if I'd hit that branch, I would be walking for hours, trying to get someone to stop to help me change my tire or walking all the way into town for hours while my truck is on the side of the road in a spot where it's probably going to get hit and I'm just like fleshing out all the aspects of it how it's like my I'm going to lose my job because I'm going to be late for work and I'm going to lose thousands of dollars because someone's going to steal my truck and I'm going to get lost and I'm going to like get attacked by a wild animal and it's going to get dark and and I and I flesh out every single like just because there's a split second where something bad almost happens my mind gets hung up on that and then I think about that bad thing that could have happened that didn't happen and I think about it for an entire day and it takes over my entire emotional life there and that's what it's like to be (laughs) me. And I'm certain that's what it's like to be a lot of people. And I'm sure I'm not special. And it's a funny little kink there in in the human mind. It's a funny little kink. That's what it's like. Yeah. You know, there was another thing I was thinking about about the TV show The Bear. Because it has a lot of fun footage. It's actually a show that's trying to be a lot of things. It's both trying to be this like real flagship sort of um important seminal piece for people working in kitchens where it's like incredibly – it really connects with the realness of working in a kitchen and the high fidelity that I already mentioned to the fidelity to what it actually looks like. But then it also tries to be this truly Chicago show where it like shows all this like iconic – Chicago, it has all these Chicago sayings and all these Chicago characters and all these Chicago city scapes and corners and the L train and all these things that people in Chicago think are iconic and uniquely Chicago. And then it shows multiple times, it shows these one, like these, this bubbly weird, Chicago has a lot of specific high rises and a lot of Architecture that's very specific and uniquely—I mean, Chicago. I think they the fucking first skyscrapers were like. I think the word skyscraper is from Chicago because the first ones they built there. But it there's this one round building. It's like a thirty-story high-rise that's circular. It's like a circular tube and. Each balcony on the entire perimeter, on the whole rim of it, is like rounded. So it's like all these individual small bubbles on the surface of this round cylinder. Because the whole thing is just bubbles like that. Cement bubbles on this cement cylinder. And it's like a very specific, rounded look. It looks like one of those cucumbers that are is f- covered in warts. You know, like some of those weird squash cucumbers have like uh, bitter gourd and bitter winter gourd and stuff. It's got like a really ridged, warty exterior. That's what the high-rise looks like. And it when every, every time I saw it, it like transported me back to how... There was this weird thing in China where a lot of times I was in a place where I had something to do, something important I had to focus on and work on. But I was surrounded by like weird high-rises, but... But because China is all high rises, you don't notice sort of, or you're not expected to notice because it's expected for there to just be infinitely weird, infinite number of high rises everywhere. Like there's some statistic I remember reading in 2007. Like in 2007, more than 50% of all big cranes on all on the entire planet were in Shanghai more than 50% of all new high-rises were being built in one city in Shanghai. You know what I mean? So it's like you know, on the planet we were building 2000 skyscrapers and a thousand of them were in Shanghai. And so there's this thing where you can stop at any moment and look at a weird building that's like insanely weird looking and you can you can then think that if this building was in Sweden Sweden has like three high rises. If this building was in Sweden, everyone would travel to it to look at it because it's so weird and so big and so special. But here, because it is surrounded by 1,000 other weird special buildings, we are then expected to not think about it at all. And God, this is such an unformed and stupid and uninteresting thought, but I'm just going to keep going. There's some weird thing where a lot of times when I'm stressed out in a space and I'm in a space a lot, the f- spatial, actual space becomes hard, like becomes really etched into some layer of my memory. So then. 10 years later, when I'm stressed out, I just feel like I'm just reminded of the space. And so like, I remember being bullied in seventh grade and, and my school was on this one level. And then there was like a lower level playground that was like below the level of the where the school was. And there was a slope connecting the two. And that angle of the flat ground up by the school and the slope and then the flat ground down at the playground, those angles of the flat and the slope and the flat, that's like whenever I felt threatened by a group and whenever I felt expelled from a group, I would like be reminded of that space, spatial arrangement of flat and then slope and then flat. And in this flat and the slope and the flat would like be connected for me to the sort of trauma of what that felt like. And then when I, my wine company was failing, I was in all these small Chinese cities and I would look up and there would be high rises covered in bubbles. And I wasn't sort of, I didn't have the spatial awareness or like, I didn't have the bandwidth to consciously think of how weird the high rises were because I was busy and I was trying to find a guy and I was trying to find a space because it was a private event and we had to get involved and we had to be there and we were late and I hadn't had any food and we're looking for it and I don't know where to find it and everyone's... I'm the leading the group and I'm supposed to be the guy who knows where we're going and I'm lost and I don't know where to find it. So like my mind is really, I don't have any space to take in the breathtaking beauty of the high rises. And then, you know, 15 years later, I'm watching a TV show and set in Chicago and I see the same high rises and it's like in the space of Chicago, those buildings are known to be beautiful. But in China, it's just like, we just need more buildings. And I, there's so many things that, so many like spatial arrangements that were in the corner of my eye for a long time while I was having a strong, stressful emotion that I then, I don't even notice how I'm like thinking about the spatial arrangement. Like I don't even notice, like I'll it's like almost a byproduct of meditating a lot where I will notice that. Actually, I'm here and my mind is actually thinking about, you know, how the weird roof of these two buildings, of these two things, this school that I went to, and you know, a university building I was in where the two roofs are connected at a weird angle. And the whole thing feels like I'm on the wrong track and I shouldn't be studying this and I'm 25 years old or whatever. And it's like, I'm in my 30s and, I'm think- and I don't even notice that I'm actually thinking back on the weird shape of the roof 10 years ago when I was studying the wrong thing and feeling bad about my life. And so much of my waking life is spent thinking about weird shapes of roofs from years ago when I was not feeling good about something. And I don't know why. I don't know why. But yeah, I do know that the three high rises that we have in Sweden are not very interesting looking, and and people are obsessed with them, and and it's they are if you pick them up and put plop them down somewhere in China, people wouldn't people would be like, yeah, that's that's invisible because that's absolutely nothing compared to the thousand things that are around it. And that has made me feel judgy about Swedish people who think that turning torso is an interesting building because it's not. Or there's this one building called Kriunprinsen, which means the crown prince for a long time. It was the tallest building in Malmo uh, up until the nineties. It's just like the most basic looking, I think it's called international style. It's what that style of high rise is called where it's just like glass. It's just mostly glass Window, flat surface glass window. And, uh, you know, for decades people would analyze the look of that building and really there was nothing to analyze. Really it was just a story about how there's enough space for us to live without building high-rises. That's all there is to say about it. Yeah. There's a lot of weird-shaped roofs that were in the corner of my eye while I was um, stressed out that I will never stop thinking about. Okay, that's the end of the episode. Wow, that's a meandering episode. I love you guys. Thank you for listening.